We are five weeks in, and we're finally wrapping up the first chapter of John this morning. Lucy will be our scripture reader for today, and she is reading from John 1, verses 35 to 51. Okay. Our scripture reading for today is from John 1, 35 to 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, following, and said to him, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and then and they stayed with him for that day. For it was about the tenth hour, one of the two heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Um, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and said and to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, uh, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found uh, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Uh, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe I will see greater things than these? Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, true. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lucy. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Jesus, um, and we ask that you would give us spontaneous faith like you gave these first disciples. Um, Help us to be captured by you, uh, to trust you, to uh, see you as worthy of our complete devotion. Uh, You are, uh, as we sang this morning, strong enough to hold us together. You do hold us together. And so would we believe that? Would we embrace it? And would it empower us to live courageously, boldly, freely, joyfully uh, in you, knowing you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I would imagine that most of us living in San Francisco are fairly tech-friendly, But I was curious, is there anyone here who bought the very first iPhone? Anybody? Got one? Mel? Okay. 
Um, first Apple Watch. Anybody buy Apple Watch number one? Uh, uh, Mel again, <laughs> and Adam. Yeah, and so um, I think I did. I bought the second or the iPhone three was the first one that I had bought. Um, if you bought the first iPhone, uh, sociologists and marketers have a name for you. You are an early adopter. Um, I thought you could see this uh, graph more easily. There's the, there's the iPhone. Look at it. So precious <laughs> with its three and a half inch screen. Um, and then uh, the next slide has this model of how innovations uh, come about. And so the first two stages are innovators and early adopters. Um, if you bought the first iPhone and immediately started making apps for it, um, then that makes you an innovator. Um, but early adopters who bought it to use it are just as useful as innovators because they provide feedback to companies uh, which help improve the product and make it useful for a mainstream audience. So they're the people who are sort of giving it, uh, testing it, giving its trial run, making complaints, um, praising it, those sorts of things. Um, but the key milestone for any product in this scheme is hurdling a 16% barrier, those first two stages. Um, there was a famous book published like 30 plus years ago, a marketing book called The Great Chasm. And it, and it sort of is a marketing strategy on how to get past, how do you market in a way to get over to the next hub. So if you see the next slide, it sort of is this chasm that exists between the early adopters and the majority. And um, Jeffrey Moore was the marketer. He called the early market visionaries and the mainstream market pragmatists. Uh, so visionaries are willing to try something when it's still incomplete. Uh, they uh, like a good idea with lots of potential. They're happy to wait for the potential and to sort of work on that potential. Whereas pragmatists require a more complete product that is uh, accessible, that is convenient, it already fits within their lives. And then, of course, the laggards at the very end are those people who like come kicking and screaming. Um, my... Uh, after my grandmother died, um, my dad kept on his iPhone for years of voicemail she left him. She hated answering machines and uh, voicemails, uh, Granny did. She also moved very, very slowly. Um, she was just a very slow mover. Um, but uh, this recording is not actually her leaving a voicemail. It's her slowly hanging up, and you can just hear her disgust. Where she's like, oh, jeez. And then it hangs up. <laughs> So my dad kept that voicemail for years on his phone, um, just to remember and laugh about it. Today's passage in John is about Jesus' first disciples, who are the early adopters of Christianity. They joined Jesus when the kingdom of God was just an idea. Uh, they joined before they really believed in Jesus fully. Um, it was a giant leap of faith for them, and that speaks to how impressive Jesus was, of course, but it also speaks to their own character and willingness to go out and to trust God and trust uh, Jesus who um, was sent from God. Now, in one sense, as we read this story 2,000 years later, we cannot be early adopters as the first disciples were. Um, Christianity is 2,000 years old. It is technically the largest religion in the world, um, having captured 30% of the global market with over 2 billion adherents. And so we're well on that uh, curve. However, there is a sense in which the church requires reformation and renewal uh, every couple generations. Uh, and so there is always a need for early adopters of some kind. 
um, people who are advancing the gospel uh, in new places, who are willing to follow Jesus in new ways, to meet new challenges. And also, given the culture we live in, San Francisco 2023, uh, there is a sense in which we especially are early adopters in this city. Uh, Being a Christian here requires vision, uh, adaptability, innovation. Uh, Even if you were formally discipled in a more Christian part of the country where church was a normal part of life, like you now live in a city where surely less than 3-4% of your neighbors follow Jesus in any meaningful sense. And if that's the case, that puts you squarely, that puts us squarely in the innovator camp. But then again, you could interpret this graph, and I would imagine most people, if you could sort of go back to the graph, would interpret Christian faith in a different way. Um, Because faith doesn't feel inevitable in San Francisco. Uh, it kind of feels like Christianity is like on the, on the tail end. It doesn't feel like driverless cars or chat GPT where eventually that's going to be all of us. Uh, quite the opposite. Our, our culture isn't pre-Christian, it's post-Christian. And so wouldn't that make us the laggards? Uh, I think that's what a lot of people would think, right? Christians are the stubborn ones, like tightly holding on to outmoded beliefs, like sending faxes to each other, right? Um, that's our story, and that, that's how we're seen. That's how a lot of us can feel, like the last holdouts. And if, if you're a Christian and that's how you feel, like a laggard, a Luddite, I would encourage you to flip that narrative around, You've got to, really, because faith that isn't visionary isn't faith. Faith that isn't visionary isn't faith. If Christians see themselves as laggards, if that's the posture our church takes, we're inevitably going to exist in a defensive posture based in fear and not in love, right? Holding out. We're going to be the grumpy grannies. To be a laggard is to resign oneself to obsolescence, to accept greater and greater isolation and irrelevance, and then to really assume inevitable compromise. We're just the last uh, holdouts. And with that mindset, uh, faith won't last. But what if instead of being the laggards, the conservatives, the traditionalists, we saw ourselves as the visionaries of San Francisco? It's not a surprise to us that we're not living according to what makes the most sense today, right? Early adopters know that, innovators know that. We're not mainstream. We're not being pragmatic. Faith is not pragmatic here. Our lives don't make the most sense of today, but that's okay because we're organizing our lives according to what could be, according to what will be. What if Christ is the innovator? And what if we're the early adopters, the entrepreneurs of San Francisco, testing out faith, making mistakes, surely a mix of success and failure, but always growing in wisdom, honing a flourishing way of life for future generations of Christians in the city as the market capture becomes 100%. How might that change how we approach our faith? How might that change how we approach our city? a tolerance with the awkwardness of it, with the newness of it, with sort of being out on the leading edge. To that end, I think there is much we can learn from the first disciples. What qualities do they possess that opened them up to following Jesus before it made sense? 
to the world and even within themselves because they start following Christ not having all the, under, the answers, not 100% confident in Jesus, but they follow him anyway. And maybe that describes you. You're not sure whether you believe or to what extent. And so there's a question like, can I still follow him? Apparently you can, because these guys did. They followed Jesus without really knowing. And what is it about them that made them disciples? And what is it about Jesus? When you read these stories about Jesus gathering his first disciples, the word that comes to mind for me is ready. There is a readiness in them. They were ready. Something about who they were made them ready to respond to the Messiah right when they saw him. And they were ready in five ways. First, they were ready for change. John 1, 35 to 37. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. And as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That story always shocks me because I don't do anything that quickly. I can't imagine one line and then me dropping everything to follow him. But this is sort of classic early adopter, right? Mel would be right there with it. Um, These first two disciples, Andrew, probably John, the author of the gospel, the beloved disciple, Um, These are the first two disciples. They were already disciples of John the Baptist, and so they had a habit that they had developed. They had already left everything at once, but now they leave again. Why? Because they were ready for change. John the Baptist had told everyone explicitly that he was not the Christ, but that the Christ was coming. And so John had discipled them to live with a sense of expectation. There was a readiness in them to change when the opportunity presented itself. The kingdom of God was about to burst onto the scene, and people needed to be ready to change with it. Not all John's disciples, who were no doubt men of strong faith, but not all of them left to follow Jesus. And so we actually have stories in the book of Acts of John the Baptist's disciples still there, not knowing about the resurrection, not knowing about the Holy Spirit. But Andrew and John were faithful disciples of John the Baptist, and so they were quick to leave. They were ready. I was super challenged by Nick's sermon last week on Jesus being the Lamb of God, and I came away asking myself, even knowing what I know about the Old Testament and New Testament and the rich imagery, um, Lamb of God imagery throughout, would I have dropped everything to follow Jesus? If John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, this is the Lamb of God, would I have said, oh, then that's where I'm going. Would I have been ready to change? I'm all the time talking about how the world needs to change, but do I know that change in the world will require change in me? Now, many of us are ready for change. Uh, We live in kind of a life-hacking culture, right? We're regularly pursuing change in our life. We see problems in ourselves, we're looking for answers, we're acting on those answers, but that's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is not about discovering good advice and acting on it. Discipleship is about following someone. And so listen to what John and Andrew do next. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, "'What are you seeking?' And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
Here, the disciples do another thing that I don't really relate to. So I'm not ready to change like they're ready. I'm also not ready to stay with Jesus like they're prepared to stay with Jesus. That's their aim. First, they were ready to change. Second, they were ready to stay. What an amazing question from Jesus, right? It's the very first words of Jesus in the book of John. It's a question. What are you seeking? That's the first words out of Jesus' mouth. What would you say if you were stalking Jesus and he turned around and asked you point blank, not who are you, not how are you, but what are you seeking? There are so many answers to that question within me. And I think I'd be frozen if Jesus asked me that. What are you seeking? What do you want? Jesus, I want help. I want answers. I want wisdom. I want freedom. I want forgiveness. I want strength. I want healing. I want life. I want purpose. I want rest. I want peace. I want joy. I want love. I want everything. All of us, including Andrew and John, are a storm of seeking. Our whole life is spent seeking, which is why they gave the perfect answer to Jesus' question. What are you seeking, Rabbi? Where are you staying? What do I want? I want you, Lamb of God. I don't just need answers. I need a teacher. I don't just need help. I need a helper. That's how needy I am. I need you to be constantly with me. I need to constantly be with you. That's how much change needs to happen in me. I worry sometimes that my relationship with Jesus is less discipleship and more consultation, right? Where I have Jesus on retainer when I need some advice and I can call him up at any time. And maybe I'm ready to change, but I'm not ready to stick around, to go to his house, to linger, to listen, to move in with him. Early adopters are not just looking for some help. That's what pragmatists do. This is their whole life, and they're ready to stay. Third, the disciples, like early adopters, were ready to share, ready to change, ready to stay, ready to share. Um, We literally talk about technology evangelists. That's a word that we apply to early adopters. That's the kind of customers that businesses want. And disciples of Jesus are Jesus evangelists. So verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The next day, implied as the very next morning after spending the night with Jesus, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And so disciples don't just desire Jesus for themselves, they desire Jesus for everyone, especially the people they most love. Even before they really believe themselves, early adopters are recruiting others to join them, the more the merrier, right? Andrew had just spent one night with Jesus. He had so much more believing to do, but in faith he shared what he knew, we have found the Messiah. Not only do disciples share about Jesus with others, they share about others with Jesus. 
John 1, 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And so this story is unique because Philip is recruited by Jesus directly. And so how does Jesus know about Philip? Well, verse 44, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Jesus knows about Philip because Andrew and Peter told Jesus about Philip. We don't know what they said about him, but they said something that inspired Jesus to go get Philip. Maybe they told him, Jesus, Philip would love you. He'll never listen to us, but he'd be great. I wish he would become your disciple. Or maybe they said something hard. Maybe they disliked Philip. Man, my neighbor Philip, I hate him. He is a mess. He would never follow you. Who knows what inspired Jesus to go get Philip. But whatever they said, they talked to Jesus about this man, this neighbor in their town, and Jesus went and found him. That's such an encouragement to me. If you love your friends, don't just share with them about Jesus. Share with Jesus about them. In prayer, talk to God about your family. Your neighbors, your coworkers, the ones you love, the ones you hate, talk to him in a meandering, conversational way, like you would a new friend over dinner. And then ask Jesus to go get them like he came and got you. I am sure that behind any faith in this room is another person's prayers. I'm sure of it. And so may we be people who not only share about Jesus to others, like let's do that, but let's share with Jesus about the people we love. Philip then shares with Nathaniel, and that's where we get our fourth ready quality. The first disciples were ready to change, ready to stay, ready to share, and ready to engage. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so that detail, you know, these are not large cities, large regions. And so when he says Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, there's a good chance that Nathanael knew who he was talking about. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I'm so glad this story is included. It's the only one where we get to actually see the penny drop in someone's heart, right? The struggle to believe that preceded the actual believing. The other seems so like, almost like trance-like. And so here we get to see somebody wrestle, which is probably true of the other stories too, but this is the only one that we sort of slow down to see. I wonder what Nathaniel thinks about this story now in heaven as he sees people reading it constantly year after year um, of him disparaging Nazareth and Jesus. Um, surely he's maybe embarrassed, laughs at himself. 
thinking he was so clever, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But for all that's wrong with Nathaniel here, the cynicism, the prejudice, he was ready to engage. And Philip didn't bristle, but just said, come and see. That's, that's a line we in San Francisco need to keep in our back pocket as early adopters. Don't bristle, don't argue. Say, come and see. A potential disciple is willing to engage, even prior to belief, even with serious doubts. How can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel, though, to his credit, accepts Philip's challenge, engages with Jesus, is confronted by him, and then worships him. John 1, 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And that's the last feature of these first disciples. They were ready to worship. Again and again, they respond to Jesus with adoration. First from Andrew, we have found the Messiah. Then from Philip, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And then culminating here from Nathaniel, the disciple who's the most skeptical about Jesus, the most cold to him, this is the one with the most enthusiastic praise. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And this final readiness is the most important of the five because these men weren't just deciding whether to buy an iPhone, right? They were becoming disciples, They were choosing to leave behind everything and everyone to follow an as-yet-untested man. Was Jesus worthy of their worship? Was he worthy of these exalted titles through John 1? Word of God, very God of very God, creator of all things, source of all life, light of the world, lamb of God, son of God, Messiah, king of Israel. And when the author includes these stories in chapter 1 of the first disciples, he knows this isn't enough to convince us, his readers, right? After all, this is only the beginning of the Gospel of John. He wants us to keep reading. There's a lot more left to the story. But it is so impressive to see that after just one night with Jesus, after just one conversation, they already believe. And even Jesus is amused by this quick belief. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's much more to come. Now we stand on the other side of that fuller story, knowing about his miracles, knowing about his healing, knowing about his teaching, and more than that, knowing about his death, burial, and resurrection, we see how Christ truly was the meeting place between heaven and earth, between God and man. But we still need to ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready to change? Are we ready to stay and to linger with Jesus? Are we ready to engage with him, to bring our full selves, our doubts, our struggles, our joys, our fears? And are we ready to worship? If Christ is who these disciples say he is, would you worship him? 
Would you change? Would you stay with him? Would you share with others? Would you engage honestly and fully? Obviously, the gospels sort of center on the main characters, but like Jesus is ministering to hundreds, if not thousands of people who are witnessing his miracles and who are benefiting from them. They don't become disciples. And so it's not just a matter of like not having sufficient proof. Like there are a lot of people who've got plenty of proof knowing that this guy is a big deal. (laughs) But there was something in them that they just didn't cross over to worship. And I have to ask myself, like, you know, we're reading, I'm reading myself into these main characters because that's what you do when you're reading a book kind of pridefully. You, like, assume you're the main character. But, like, would I be a main character or would I be the crowd, in the crowd? Um, If we're to be a new generation of Christians in San Francisco, the early adopters of faith in this generation, we must be ready to worship Jesus. We need to pursue a sense of freedom to respond, to be quick to adore him, to praise him, to follow him, not to force it. God is not honored by pretend worship, and people are not persuaded by pretend worship. But when the opportunity comes, today and every day, we need to be ready. And we need to ask the Lord to to make us ready. And I sometimes worry that uh, my generation, my culture, is just inherently slow to worship. Maybe it's just me. Where we're just too sophisticated, too educated, too careful, too reasonable, too scientific to be impulsively worshipful. Nathaniel is impulsive in his worship. It explodes out of him. He thought Jesus was ridiculous, and then all of a sudden on a dime, he says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And even Jesus is shocked by this quick belief. He worshiped what he didn't know yet, but he was right to do it, and we are right to do it to explode in worship, to be impulsively worshipful? Can we be foolishly worshipful? And maybe that feels out of reach for you. If you find yourself cynical, jaded, doubtful, prejudiced, will you follow the call to come and see? That's what Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. That's what Jesus says to Andrew and John. Come and see. Where are you staying? Come and you will see. And as you see, will you be quick to worship? And as you worship, will you be quick to invite others to come along as well? Uh, This is the litmus test John already foretold in 1, chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. Our response to Jesus, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Are we willing to know Jesus? Are we willing to receive him? I've um, talked a lot recently about the need for Christians to share Christ with others. Um, it's so hard, though. Um, it's hard for me, too, and, and I can wonder why. Is it hard? Are we really in that different a situation than these first disciples? Like, they did it so naturally and so easily. I don't think it was any simpler for them. One of the most personally impactful books I've read in the past 10 years came out of nowhere. Um, I don't know how I found it. It didn't, as far as I know, like win any awards or get much press. I feel like it was one of those like Amazon recommended it to me and it looked interesting, so I bought it and then I just couldn't finish it. And it's, it's really quirky and philosophical, but it just packed a punch to me. It's called Addiction and Virtue. Beyond the Model of Disease and Choice. That's a super boring name. <laughs> um, it's basically a philosophy of addiction, um, and there's a lot of good about it, but the ending hit me hard, really hard. One of the difficult things about pastoring people suffering from addiction is that it has such a powerful hold on people that everyday participation in the church is usually not enough, and it might not ever be enough. Um, citizens' communities are great, but it's likely more important for you to not miss your 12-step program than to attend our small group. Our small groups can't provide what you need. So much so that the agreed-upon best practice for pastors, when faced with someone who is addicted to alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever, is to recommend AA over church. Like, yes, like, come on Sunday morning, but, like, fill your life with AA. Come when you can, but if you have to choose, choose AA. And that just sucks as a pastor. Like, it feels wrong to say that. Why is that the case? Why is Jesus not enough? Why is the Spirit-filled body of Christ not enough? I used to think it was, but I've learned... For the addict, it's, you, it's often not. And I want to read a long quote. I don't have it on the thing because you can just listen to it. A long quote from this book, which he closed with, and it explains the tragic limits of church. Uh, Kent Dunnington is his name, and he writes, Addiction is the most powerful form of idolatry available to modern persons, and it presents a particular challenge to the church. In modernity, we all feel anxious and restless, but the typical response includes more respectable forms of diversion, like shopping, entertainment, or hobbies. Unlike these typical responses, addiction wants more. It wants to be consumed, enthralled, controlled, directed. And because of this, the normal life of distraction and diversion, in a real sense, results in a loss of meaning for the addicted person. And it's therefore unlikely that such a life would provide a rationale as compelling as the rationale of addiction, that there's something really dissatisfying to normal life for the addict. And that, this is, I suspect, why many of us in the church feel so powerless in the face of addiction. We feel the power of addiction in our own lives, and we doubt that the gospel is strong enough to overcome it. 
Of course, we don't say this sort of thing. We are indeed committed by our beliefs to denying it. But when an alcoholic stumbles into church, when we learn that our pastor has been addicted to pornography for the past 10 years, when we drive through local ghettos and slums that are decimated by addiction, the immediate response for many of us who call ourselves Christians is despair. Is the gospel really powerful enough for all this? I suspect that many of us feel this way because we doubt the power of the gospel over our own lives. We wonder if we have escaped the grip of addiction, not because of the power of the gospel, but because of circumstances, temperament, fear of rejection, cowardice. Perhaps, unlike the addict, we have not demanded an all-consuming purpose, a coherent and integrated life, an ecstatic participation in some all-sufficient and transcendent good. For so long, we have told ourselves that in the words of the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. And we have used this justification to dull and suppress our deepest longings for rest, peace, and joy. We have settled instead for a life of respectability, and we respond to our boredom, loneliness, and internal disorder through distraction and diversion. For many of us, the church represents this life of respectability from which we must occasionally escape by going on moral holiday. For others of us, the church is itself a distraction, a place where we get to play a part, to stroke the ego, to be entertained, to socialize, to get a little chicken soup for the soul. Thus, when we are confronted with the addict, we doubt that the gospel has the power that is needed to rescue the addict, for we know that in a very real sense, the addict has a fierce and desperate need that is foreign to us and for which we do not have a response. We recoil at the presence of the addict, for we fear that the addict's life is an indictment on the insufficiency of our own lives. We recognize that our own lives are not interesting and beautiful enough to offer a genuine alternative to the addict. And we fear that a gospel power enough, powerful enough to redeem the addict would also threaten our lives of decent mediocrity. We are not sure that we want the church to be a place where persons with addictions are liberated, since that would mean that the church is no longer compatible with our own lives. I love this and hate it. <laughs> um, I love it because of the tremendous dignity it extends to the addict, the honor that it gives someone who is after ecstatic experience, transcendence, to be consumed by something. The author here is asking me to, in a sense, admire the addict as someone who, as broken as they might be, is admirably desperate for a transcendent life and will not settle for anything less. It's a powerful twist, a powerful turn, and I really love it. It is so good, but I hate it because of how it indicts me and how it challenges me man, why can't citizens' communities replace AA? Because AA meets literally every night, multiple times throughout the city. In AA, you are matched with a mentor, a fellow addict, who you might also talk to every day and whom you can call in an emergency at any time. It is all-consuming. It is discipleship, right? Like, that is full-out discipleship. Sell everything that you have and follow me discipleship. What does this have to do with the first disciples, with early adopters? We live in a city overwhelmed by addiction, right? Like this city, home, 
the houseless community, so much addiction on the streets. It is, it is an expression of the soul of the city. Because it's not only on the streets, in every home, people are enthralled by idolatries of all kinds. We ourselves struggle against destructive habits all day long. At this, Harold Best wrote, at this very moment and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. In such a city with people longing for transcendence, longing for meaning, longing for ecstatic experience, like I encourage you to apply that dignity when you see people on the streets. They are longing for transcendence, for experience, for community, for wholeness. And when you see it, do we believe that Jesus can compete with that? Do we believe the gospel is enough? And not just enough, that it is everything. Are we the early adopter, visionary, innovative evangelist that will say to the addict, to the doubter, to the cynic, to the work-obsessed, to the fearful, to the sad and the lonely, I have found the Messiah, the one promised to us. I have found God. He is everything you want and more. Don't believe me? Come and see. Do you not believe sitting here? Friend, come and see. As Mitchell said, do your homework. Let us do your, do your homework with us. Jesus is available to you. Worship is possible for you. But that enthusiasm only comes after we've left everything else behind. After we've sat with Jesus, lingered with him, engaged him with our whole selves, Will you be an early adopter of Jesus? Will you be a visionary follower of Christ, following him in San Francisco, not for what is, but for what could be? Let's pray.